All right, we might as well get started. Uh, even, even bigger crowd tonight than last week. And I think there are two possible reasons for that. One is that you heard that last week there were cookies. I'm sorry, there are no cookies. There were cookies last week, no cookies tonight. Although I thought... Because, yeah, they were good, too. Um, We thought, though, that... uh, I I thought of this too late. We should have had raisin oatmeal because... um, Because Abigail actually brings raisin cakes to David's men, so... Um, the other possible reason is, the, is, is because of Stacy Barrett's going to be our guest speaker tonight. So uh, that's another reason why. So we'll see what happens. So anyway, please, if you have Bibles or a phone, love for you to follow along in 1 Samuel 25. I want to just take us through the story with some comments uh, so that we can kind of set the stage and get you familiar with the narrative. And then I'm going to invite Stacy up and we'll go to 8, 5 after 8. Uh, tonight, unless um, uh, Stacy decides that she's done, okay. So, um, just to set up First Samuel twenty-five, um, Samuel has died. We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, the main problem is that David is being pursued by Saul. Saul wants to kill David because he believes that. David is a threat to his throne. Of course he isn't, but Saul's just paranoid and deluded at this point. So anyway, in chapter 24, Saul finds out that David is camped at En Gedi. And so he grabs 3,000 choice men and heads over there to kill David. And what ensues is the famous Old Testament bathroom incident. Saul heads into the very cave where David is hiding to relieve himself David has a a once-in-a-lifetime, actually it ends up being a a twice-in-a-lifetime, but once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to assassinate Saul while Saul's doing his business. And given the circumstances, we might say that David was probably within his rights. You could make the argument to kill Saul, but he doesn't because he wants to spare God's anointed. He has respect for him, even though Saul's uh, uh, reign has been somewhat of a disaster. So David spares Saul's life. But not without letting Saul know that he could have killed him. Saul promises to leave David alone because of his act of kindness. But David knows better. He knows Saul won't relent. So David continues to be on the run. He continues to uh, stay away from the cities where Saul might be. He's just hiding out in the wilderness. And so this is then how he ends up meeting uh, this woman, Abigail, in 1 Samuel 25. He heads to the wilderness in Paran. And, and um, just understand that in ancient times, when you were on the run, when you were on the lamb, uh, staying in the wilderness was much better than trying to lose yourself in a city. There, was, there were too many networks uh, in these cities, and these cities were so small anyway, everybody knew what was going on. So he's on the run, he stays in the wilderness. But also, when you're on the run in the wilderness and you have mouths to feed, and David had 600 mouths to feed, so that's a challenge, you've got to find a way to feed all of your people. So that's like a daily challenge. And so um, they would look for people such as this guy Nabal to be able to help him. So here we go. First Samuel 25, 1 through 3. Now Samuel died and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house in Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man there in Maon, uh, 
whose business was in Carmel, that's not Carmel, California, that's a different Carmel. The man was very rich, he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, knowing that we have somebody on staff named Caleb, that's like one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible right there. But, uh, but look how these two people are described, Nabal and Abigail. Details are never uh, inserted into the Bible without some purpose. Could these details be some sort of a foreshadowing of what's to come? And the answer is yes. The, the name Nabal means fool. So imagine being named that by your parents. I wish we had the history of that. It's a fool, that, that's his name, okay? Abigail means a father's joy. Uh, so you might begin to ask this question if you know anything about Nabal. What happens when a man in position of power and influence is a fool? So we might talk a little bit about that tonight. Uh, but here's, here's an interesting challenge. Uh, just because a guy is rich and he has a great wife, just because he's married up, it doesn't mean he's godly wise or ultimately headed for the best outcome. Trust me, I have some experience in this area myself because I have been reminded several times that I married up as well. Anyway, verses 4 through 8. What is Frank being in Hebrew? I, I don't know. I've always wanted, I'm 64 and I've been thinking for 30 years. I want to look that up and I keep forgetting. Maybe I'm scared, so... Uh, David heard it, uh, in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him by name. Thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did not harm them, and they missed nothing, and all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. David's saying, look, we've been treating you well. We could have just wiped you out and taken your provisions. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Uh, please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, uh, David. So he, he's saying, Nabal, we just want to be helped out. Do us a solid. Have some hospitality. And oh, by the way, remember, we helped you out and treated you with kindness and respect. So Nabal is under no stringent requirement to help David. However, it was common in those times that when people came and wanted help from you, you it was just a, a question of hospitality. Very, very different than maybe what we have today. But um, also, if Nabal had some measure of wisdom and discernment, which obviously he does not, he, he would understand that he should help. Verses 9 through uh, 12. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in, in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man, uh, man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. A man who is quick to anger has no discernment. I've read that in commentaries about this 
paragraph. And this is just a disaster waiting to happen. Sooner or later, this lack of discernment, this quick uh, temper is going to bite you. So verse 13 uh, is when we see that Abigail is, gonna, is getting ready to enter the picture at this point. So then verse 14 through 17. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore... Know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. This is one of his employees saying this. But notice also in this paragraph, we start to get a little bit more detail uh, about, um, about all the work that David did. We just get a little bit early. Hey, hey, we took care of you. We didn't bother you. But now we find out that David's men were actually there protecting his shears. Night and day, and Nabal still decides I can't give him, I can't give them any of my provisions. So I still think, though, it's just interesting that this guy called his master a worthless man to the guy's wife. Has anybody ever done that in the marketplace and survived? Okay, so so Abigail now at this point has a decision to make and some work to do, and I'm I'm guessing that she probably has some experience with this. Any. Anyway, it's not in the text, but my guess is that she's kind of used to this behavior. In spite of all their wealth, she knows that this foolishness could cause everything that they had built up over their lifetimes to be, to be lost overnight. David is not somebody to be trifled with. And understand, this is not a unique situation. Um, I, think, I think if we're all really honest, we all struggle when it comes to uh, one of our partners or our spouse or something that is putting both of us in danger in some way that one of us might think is uh, foolish. So in the spirit of true transparency, I will tell you there have been times when Jackie has had to manage a situation in which I kind of made a mess of it. Okay. Now, here you go. This is important to know. I am happy to report that my situations have never resulted in the same way that Nabal's did. I'm still alive, so... That's a good thing. That's, by the way, spoiler alert, Nabal eventually dies, okay? Um, but here's the problem. I, maybe you've heard me talk about this before. There's this thing called the Johari window that has four panes. It's a Johari window of cells. It has four panes. It says that um, generally speaking, not specifically speaking, but generally speaking, we manifest ourselves in four different cells. We have the open self, the hidden self, the uh, blind self and the unknown self. The open self is, this is kind of a dramatist view of, of um, uh, persona. Um, the, the open self is kind of like w our front stage. We're willing to let everybody see this about ourselves. Obviously, our hidden self is how we behave when nobody's looking, okay? And we all have type, personality types, characteristics. That, I mean, I don't really want people to see uh, the kind of clothes I wear around the house when nobody's around, okay? I put on my fat pants and old t-shirts and it's just, and, and I'm shoving Cheetos in my mouth. It's just really ugly. I try not to let a lot of people see that, okay? 
um, even Jackie. So I wait till she's at work and then I engage in that. But that's, that's the hidden self. And one way of describing it is ostensibly it's what you know about yourself but what other people don't know. Then there's the blind self, okay? So just reverse that. The blind self is what everybody else seems to know about you but you don't know. And this is actually the most important self to understand and try to get help for. This is the self where you need um, trustworthy, um, gentle, but, but candid input and counsel into your life. And be willing to accept it and to be willing to hear it, even though it's hard. This is the hardest thing people have to do is to hear from others about their blind self. Of course, you have to be careful about who you let into that inner circle because there are some people who would love to get in on that inner circle and use it for their own good. But develop those people around you that can do this with you and, and it really helps you. Then there's the unknown self. That's, you don't know this about yourself and nobody else does either. It may, it may remain um, uh, latent for the rest of your life and it, later on in s- some point in your life it may become known to yourself and others. So, verse 18. Then Abigail made haste, she went fast, took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. Abigail is going to do what her husband should have done. Now, there, was some, there are some who would argue that Abigail has no right to do this. And I know that this is what we would call a descriptive passage in the Bible. It's not prescriptive. It's not telling everybody what they should do in this situation. It's more descriptive. It's just describing what happened. And yet, I'll just tell you that for myself, it's hard to ignore how God orchestrates this and how this situation is eventually used to David's advantage. And David, if you remember, is a man after God's own heart. So again, I... I'm, I believe I'm married to an Abigail. I feel for Nabal and what's about to happen to him, but I identify more with Abigail here for two reasons. One, we should all identify more with her, and second of all, because I'm married to an Abigail. So, 19 through 22. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain... Behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow um, has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more so if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So David, David's going to kill them all. Okay? David's determined, as I like to say, to fix Nabal's wagon. It's an old person saying. If you're young here, you probably have never heard that before. But Nabal messed with the wrong guy. He's he's messing with Steve Martin in planes, trains, and automobiles, if you remember that part. Now, did did Abigail violate? uh, In in premarital counseling, one of the things I talk to uh, couples about is how marriage is three orientations, back-to-back, side-by-side, and face-to-face. And so side by side is a partnership and friendship. Face to face is that sacred, intimate space between the two people that's unique to them and should not be shared with anybody else. Back to back is this orientation where you're standing up for each other, protecting each other, um, and uh, uh, encouraging and advocating 
for each other, um, even though perhaps privately there has to be a hard conversation later, but publicly you're going to stand up uh, for each other and protect each other. So is she violating this idea of back-to-back? I would argue that no, she's not, because she's actually trying to protect Nabal's interest here by appeasing David. Now, Nabal's not going to like her going the way she goes about and does this, but she's doing what's best for Nabal in this uh, case. She's going to have to have a candid conversation with him later, and if he's wise, he would listen. But at any rate, 23 through 24. When Abigail, Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed on the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let... Uh, let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Um, you don't have to identify yourself tonight, but is there any woman in this room tonight who is willing to take the guilt of a foolish man in order to avert disaster? Like I said, you don't have to raise your hand. You may not want to raise your hand at this point. And I'm not talking about just in marriage, but maybe in the marketplace too or in the neighborhood or something, anywhere else. You're willing to fall on your sword for someone else, someone who is actually your partner, supervisor, or someone whose status is higher than yours. Maybe you've done that already in the past. Uh, But also there's a bigger foreshadowing in verse 24, if you see it there. There's this foreshadowing of the substitutionary atonement of Christ in the New Testament. She's willing, she says, lay all the guilt for my husband on me. I will take all the punishment and pain and consequence of his sin on me. That's Jesus uh, going to the cross. So this gospel message has been brought to you tonight by Geico. Verses 25 through 31. Let not my Lord David regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, And as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present, uh, uh, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, uh, of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause, you, David, shall have no cause for grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord, working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. This is quite a speech, and it's a really good speech. Uh, and it's, it's a great strategy, it's great rhetoric. Um, you could sum up the speech by saying, please don't kill my husband. But there's a deeper reason that she's giving it. Um, She's not wishing a curse on her husband, though she acknowledges his liabilities. Rather, she's trying to simply fix a problem that could have been avoided with a little bit of discernment and wisdom. And then she gives this insight. She says, David, when you become king, do you want this act of haste 
killing my goofy husband on your conscience. Would you like that? Even, even if David's, you can make, David's 100% right, but still, I, haven't you been 100% right, but then the way you handle something, you have regrets about it later, even though you're 100% right? I, I mean, I've, I've struggled with that in my life as well. It's, it's, a, it's a very tricky and difficult situation, but it, but it happens. So the question might be, have you ever had a poor past decision haunt you as you try to continue your life? Over and over, it just comes back to slay you. I think all of us can say that we've struggled with that. So Abigail's trying to help David avoid this. She makes a great argument. Look what happens in verses 32 through 35. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me from this, uh, this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would, not, there would not be left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up, and, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. And I have granted your petition. Again, notice the word discretion. Abigail is a woman of discretion. She's often described that way by the commentaries and the scholars. So disaster is averted. But then, verses 36 through 38. And Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Whoa. Now, guys, just a little counsel. And I'm not going to look any of you in the eye right now. I'm going to look up here. If you have a strong and discerning wife, I think you should celebrate that. Okay? Don't. Don't take this blessing for granted. I, I would pray for a Proverbs 31 wife. At some point in this, in this uh, series, we are going to read Proverbs 31 and talk about that. But pray for a Proverbs 31 wife. Wise, strong, entrepreneurial, and fun. It's great to have a fun wife. I don't know if you know that or not, but it is. It really is. So then the rest of the story, 39 through 42. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from wrongdoing. Uh, Romans 12, 17 through 21. Do not overcome evil with evil. Leave it to the Lord to avenge. So this is all over Scripture. All over Scripture. Uh, the Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take him to, it, to him to be his wife. And she rose and bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant uh, to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey for her five young, and her five young women who attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. So we see that God does avenge. Romans 12, Isaiah talks about that as well. Um, 
question comes up, was Abigail actually trying to arrange this? Was there a secret hidden agenda of Abigail? No. It's just how God worked it out. God is the one who's got all the active verbs in, in the midst of this. Okay? Um, and then just let me close with this. Some history and maybe some uh, spousal accounting. Um, David actually had no wife at this time, essentially. No wife. Some of you might. What about Michael? Okay. Well, he had married Michael, Saul's daughter. But then in the meantime, Saul had taken Michael and had married her off to another man because he was intent on pursuing David and killing him. So he figured David was already as good as dead. So he got Michael married off to somebody else. By the way, that's a really sad story later when David and Michael get uh, reunited. And so Abigail, in effect, is David's second first wife. So we feel okay about that, sort of. But then we have to remember that he eventually adds seven more wives to that total. We all know about Solomon, right? I think, I think Solomon was just trying to outdo his father, David, and, and of course he succeeded. So let's um, move into our time with Stacy Barrett. Would you please welcome Stacy Barrett? Hi. Good, how are you? I'm good. Sorry, I know this is weird, but we got to have that right there so it'll pick us up. So you're going to be an internet star now, Stacy. Oh my gosh, here we go. (laughs) All right, so first question, who is Stacy Barrett? Tell us about yourself, your family, what you do, how long you've been around Redemption Arcadia. I forgot that you were going to ask me that one. Oh, okay. Um, How long have we been at Redemption? Years. Years. Five, four years, three years, five Something. Three. Oh, she's going to say three. I don't know. Several years. Um, wife to Tim. I have four kids. I have three um, boys, and my youngest is a daughter, and she's with me. Um, so, yeah, being a wife and a mom is my greatest joy. I also uh, coach. So I'm a health coach. I help men and women, you know, make changes in their habits and their health. And I also am a business coach, so I help, um, like, leadership skills. So you're, like, a leadership coach, too, then. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So are you kind of busy? There's a lot going on. I don't have a lot of white space in my calendar. You don't, oh, you don't have a lot, a lot of white, of white space. space. Okay, yeah. <laughs> good. All right. Well, that's good. All right. So uh, how long have you and Tim been married? Almost 20 years. Yeah, I think ni- 19. 19? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And did you, did you meet in Nevada, was that right, or California? Uh, in South Lake Tahoe, which is in California. South Lake Tahoe is where yeah. you met. We met at church. Okay. Yeah, I'm at a church. Mm-hmm. Okay, so not like on um, eHarmony or Christian Mingle or I'm Desperate for Anyone.com? <laughs> no, no. There was like a church service and like the young people were leaving the church service and Tim came in. It's actually kind of a funny story because Tim came into church with his friend. There were actually two girls with him. I didn't know this, but I saw him and it was very rare that there were people that, young people that just walked into church in Tahoe. It's kind of a dark, you know, party town. So I said, come sit up here with us. So he never told us they were girls. So they sat a couple rows back and he sat up with us and that was kind of the beginning of a friendship. And you were friends for a while and then? Yeah, friends for a solid year. Um, so this is a good story too. I'm a little bit older than Tim and we were talking on the phone one night and he said, Something to the effect of, I was like his really cool big sister. And so that kind of like, <laughs> that kind of friend, he just friend zoned me right there. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, we're, that's oh, good. Okay, we're friends. Yeah, we were friends for like a solid year. Okay. Mm-hmm. So d- did you finally grab him by the shoulders and say, hey, 
Or did he finally just say, hey? No, he kind of woke. Yeah. <laughs> so this, I don't think I've ever told you this. So story. he got woke? Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> So we, you know, it's like snowboarding town. People come up to go snowboarding. And a, a guy that I had dated in the past came out to go snowboarding. And he got really kind of awkward about it. And so everything got really kind of awkward. And then um, it was very awkward for a while. We decided not to talk about that anymore. And then one day he just said, forget it. We're done. Like, yeah, you're, we're and anyways. And I don't do things halfway. So literally we had this conversation kind of a DTR. This is like another embarrassing story that I'm telling the whole internet. He lived with one of the pastors, and I literally said, okay, well, the next morning, because I worked at the church, too, I said, you're going to have to get up and tell Wayne. We're going to have to, like, start premarital counseling. Like, I just had to, I mean, I just, I was in from, like, the second. Isn't that hilarious? Wow. Yeah, it's kind of intense. Tim has had a wild ride. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. All right. So we're going to transition a little bit now. Um, can you just give us some general observations from this narrative that struck you as you read it and studied? Yeah, there's so many observations. I think the first thing, like at the very beginning where he said, like, now Samuel died. I just think that's so important because like it's, it's like it's sandwiched in this um, moment of history between Saul and then the reign of David and like I just gotta imagine everyone's a little unsettled yes right because Samuel was the guy and then now he's gone and everyone's kind of wondering what's left so that was like the first observation um the second observation the the more and more times I I always think like where am I in the story and I think you said you'd identify with Abigail I identify with David I've been given more than I deserve um got a lot of potential, but if someone wrongs me, I want to burn it all down. And so <laughs> over the years, I feel like I've had the benefit of a more, much more like thoughtful, wise husband who's helped me not burn it all down when I you know, get frustrated. Um, the fact that Samuel's, you, you pointed this out because it's just in the text, it's just sort of like, oh, by the way, Samuel's yeah. dead. But you, you said this is really interesting because it's a sort of a, a time of tension and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, it's not in the text, and so we're just supposing here, but do you think that had something to do with Nabal's response to David's men? Who, who's David? Who cares? There's all these people separating from their masters now. And Yeah, one of the commentaries I read said it was like, Team Saul, Team David. And I don't know if there's, you know, if we can like back that up with scripture, but I do think, you know, it is, like, it was pretty intentional. Like, he obviously knew who he was, son of Jesse. You know who your dad is. Yeah, so obviously, right. you know what's happening. Yeah. Um, but Abigail, I think, was was team David. She's team Messiah. She's team, like, don't forget who you are. Yeah. If you burn this all down, like, there might be no King David. And so I think, like, when I saw yeah. this, when I read it, it's like, I'm almost, like, picturing, like, he's, like, kind of the angel and the devil on the shoulder. You know, it's like David's you know, could go either way, and she's helping him remember who he is, and to David's credit, he turns quick. So that's interesting. It just struck me because um, uh, last week, we, I read at the end of the Esther story, I read this longer quote uh, from an Old Testament scholar, I think it's O'Brien, um, where he talked about how if Esther didn't do what she did, Although, you know, God would have made sure that resistance had risen up somewhere else. But um, because Esther did what she did and went to King Xerxes, uh, she was part of uh, preserving uh, the Messiah, Mm. the future Messiah, some, you know, 450 Mm -hmm. years later. 
And now we see, okay, so Abigail, because David is in the line of the Messiah, now Abigail's doing the same thing. Who, who knows what would have happened? It's interesting how David was so sure he shouldn't uh, commit any violence against Saul, but he was just, he was raring to go against uh, Nabal, and that could have messed up his... Yeah. Yeah, it kind of all reminds of me of, like, you've got the middle manager, and he's getting, like, attacked all day you know, by his boss, then he comes home and he just lets it rip on his wife and his kids. It's like, he's been like holding it back with Saul. And, and, and even like this story is like sandwiched between like, he spares him and then he spares him again. He's not going to touch the Lord's anointed, but like Nabal comes and he's like, Oh, we're, it's on, we're done. I'm going to burn it to the ground. Shock and awe. And it's also like, it struck me when you were reading it too, like everything rises and falls on leadership. Right. So he's, He's his people, his guys are in the wilderness. They're looking to him for clues, their cues. How are they going to treat people? And so they're protecting the shepherds, but then they're ready to strap on the, you know, they would have strapped down the sword if he would have told them to. And then they would have been like, here's David in the wilderness with his thugs. It's not the mighty men. They're like the thugs. It would have just been a completely different story. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, what are some features or characteristics of Abigail that you see in this narrative? Characteristics that not just Abigail or women should have, but all of us as Christ followers. I, I wrote down that I see she's smart, discerning, courageous, decisive, sensible, and reasonable. Yes, um, I see all of those things too. The two words that came to mind for me were leadership and protector. Um, I think leadership's influence, right? That's what John Maxwell says. And you know who's the leader by who's following. Right. So, like, this thing happens for Nabal. Nobody, and no, no. He, they all go to, they look to her. Like, what are we going to do? So, clearly, she's the leader of the house. And the other thing, I just got this picture of, like, the protector. You know, it's like, he, you know, it's like Jesus, um, like, in the, under his wings, you know, he talks yeah. about that. Like, the mother heart of God. It's like, here she is. It's like all of the people are under her wings. And obviously, they're, like, he's abusive. Yeah. I mean, that's obvious. Yeah. It's obvious. He's emotionally abusive. He's abusive in all kinds of different ways. And she's able to, like, like cover them, which I thought was really an interesting So, thing. yeah. So, I, I mean, just beyond just protecting what she and Nabal had built up and, and what they had, um, she's also just protecting their workers. Yes. These guys who have faithfully served them through all of this time. She's protecting them as well. Okay, good. All right, here we go. I got a little run up on this question. Um, The way Abigail goes to David, risking her life, she knows she's going to risk her life, similar to um, the way Esther knew she was risking her life to go to Xerxes. Uh, It reminds me of Esther. So Abigail has courage. Okay, here we go. might get a little tense now. in Christ, all of us are called to be courageous, I believe. Yeah. We are to be courageous. We are to be bold, okay, with wisdom, mm-hmm. but courageous and bold. Um, often, when a woman is courageous, however, she creates tension for many who would then criticize her and marginalize her. Yeah. You ever seen that or experienced that at all in the marketplace or anywhere else? Okay, so... so in many respects, it takes courage to be courageous. Mm-hmm. Okay? You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Can you talk about that tension? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, she's, cur- she's courageous. Esther's courageous. I think um, 
like you're gonna do the thing when the reason to do the thing exceeds the reason not to do the thing. Like you and I talked about that over coffee. So I think she had a big reason to be courageous. But I think it's hard. It's um, I think I think being courageous means being willing to be misunderstood. Um, I think, and I think that's hard. I think for women, that's really hard. I mean, I look back. Um, I look back to like to my life, even pre Tim and post Tim, and I think. Like, um, I think I told you when we met before, I felt like, oh, I was going to need to marry somebody that was going to be really strong and kind of like put the hammer down. You know, that was what leadership. Plant the flag. Yeah, what leadership looked like. Uh-huh. And I think, um, I'm going to cry. In my husband, what I found is like, um, he's confident in himself, so it allows me to be me. And I think um, a lot of times what women come up against is they trigger like these stories in other people. And it really might not have anything to do with like the actual thing that you're coming up against. Does that make sense? Like, it's not the act, it's not her, it's them. But it's really hard to, to distinguish that. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Um, uh, well, yeah, I want to go back. You kind of rolled over this, and I think this is uh, a really important point. I'm also trying to remember for a future sermon sometime so that I can um, pretend it was my idea. But uh, you know. Um, something you said earlier, but the the big thing that you kind of rolled over was um, the way the way Tim has handled your relationship. It has allowed you to be you. Yes. So talk more about that. Yeah, um, I heard a quote today by John Maxwell too, and he said, um, "Position." So there's you know he talks about levels of levels of leadership. You ever read that book, Five Levels of Leadership? Yeah. Positional leadership looks to make others small. And what I've seen in other marriages, not my own, is like trying to minimize or make someone small. And I think even more so I was thinking about this, like my strong women friends that are single who don't maybe have somebody who can like speak truth and speak life. And so I think, um, I think, yeah, like not being threatened and allowing, it's almost like a boundaries thing in some ways too. It's like, where do I end and where do you begin? And allowing someone to have space to grow into who they're supposed to be is, is rare, um, and yeah. it's, it's needed. All right, so uh, men can talk about this all day long, but maybe not get anywhere. From a woman's perspective, what can, uh, what can a husband or a manager or a leader do um, in order to not feel threatened by allowing people to be who they are and be entrepreneurial and to... Uh, try and fail and and be that person what can they do that's a great question I mean I think um, I think there's like a thoughtfulness you know that maybe we can encourage people as like Viktor Frankl says you know between stimulus and and response there's like a pause maybe like a thoughtfulness just like giving space and then also this idea of like owning who you are and where do I end and someone else begins and I think the work is like when someone tells me something and I have like an outsized emotion that kind of comes up, I have to like go back and ask myself, where does that thing come from? And so I think like, I remember really vividly, there was a um, guy who was on staff at a church. I wasn't really on staff, but I was kind of in leadership. And I remember I like, and I remember um, he asked a question or something and I kind of like, it was not a wise move on my part, but I kind of gave him some advice. And he was like, literally looked at me and was like, yeah, I don't remember asking you for advice. And I was like, whoa, like, it was just like, wow, like the misogyny was like intense. But then you think there's probably something that happened with him or his mom, or there's some story back there. And I just, I just think we're all walking through life with story. Yeah. Right. 
So, yeah, I have this note here that you, you said when we met, uh, you, follow your contempt. Talk oh, about yeah, that. Yeah, that's good. So you hear all the time, follow the money. Okay, yeah. but you're saying follow the contempt. Yeah. Well, and I think I was talking to it more um, in, like, terms of your inner voice. So it was a tool right. that, like, um, so I've, I've done, you know, different self-development and, like, you know, spiritual growth and personal growth things over the years. And one of the things that one of the gals talked to us about was, um, like, when you start to really kind of uh, – um, minimize yourself or you've got like a real negative inner voice like uh like you're, you do something and all of a sudden this voice comes out of nowhere it's like well that was really stupid why did you do that and it's like the tool she gave us is to follow that back so if you see contempt you know maybe that's at someone else or maybe it's you know aimed inward at you you know maybe you you follow that and try to figure out where that is because i know for me what i've seen over the years is like this you know we have these repeating storylines and one of these repeating storylines is i'm too much uh, if you were going to compare me to an animal, it wouldn't be like a teddy bear. The word that I've heard is pit bull, which is not like <laughs> really maybe attractive. And so I have this story where I can push people to the breaking point and it, you know, it happens. So then I have to like go back and, and figure out where that story started so that I yes. don't have outside, outsized emotions in today's world, right? Right. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So I even like Nabal and David, back to Nabal and David, you know, Nabal has probably been fighting for power his whole life. My hunch is, I mean, again, this is extra biblical, but where'd the sheep come from? It probably wasn't him. It was probably her help. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh -huh. And then it's like, no, no, you know, I've, I'm, you know, I've people have picked on me my whole life. This guy wants it. This is my one shot to, yeah, you know, show. Yeah. So going back to a couple of things, um, You've talked about this idea of, of um, letting somebody be who they are mm -hmm. so that they can flourish and thrive um, within the context of relationship, covenant relationship, yeah. of course. Um, so uh, believe it or not, in COM 100, we have a section where we teach on leadership, and I bring a lot of Maxwell stuff into that <laughs> oh, as well, that. Yeah. which is interesting. And so one of the questions I'll ask for discussion is, is leadership... Um, position or influence mm -hmm. and you, you've already said well leadership is really primarily about influence look around at who people are following mm -hmm. they maybe don't necessarily have the influence if you've ever been at a team meeting or a committee meeting and there's a chair yeah but there's somebody there that when they start talking that's when people lean forward mm -hmm. you kind of have the the influencer and the problem there is that sometimes the people with the position are not trying to influence, but rather they're really good at bigfooting. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah, that and that can really, yeah, yeah, and that can really drive people crazy. So that's one thing. Uh, actually, two other things. One is also when I'm doing premarital. One of the things I try to get the couple to understand is that this idea of the two becoming one flesh in covenantal marriage mm -hmm. is actually this weird gospel math where uh, one plus one actually equals three. If yeah. you really do the two yeah. become one well. Yeah. You actually become three. You're, you're as powerful as you know. Three, you're, the sum is much greater than the parts. If you're if you're apart, and that's true as well. When you understand each other's strengths and weaknesses, and you work to 
uh, push the strengths forward and minimize the other person's weaknesses. Mm -hmm. But there has to be wisdom and understanding and, and give and take in, in the midst of that as well. And then finally, you say follow the, your contempt. Um, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, one of the most popular uh, persons to write on uh, marriage and relationships is a psychologist named John Gottman. Has anybody read Gottman? Okay, so he talks about um, what destroys marriages uh, uh, faster than anything. Is He calls, it, calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Have you heard this mm -hmm. before? Yeah, so the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I, he's not a Christian guy, but he uses this, this uh, you know, Revelation 6 imagery, which is interesting. Um, and and you all know the four? Anybody know the four? Brittany, yes? Uh, and what? Defensiveness. Defensiveness. You got all four. Awesome. That's Brittany. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> so criticism, stonewalling, defensiveness, and contempt. But he says the lead horse is contempt. That's the one that, that's the one that you've really got to root out, Get out in the midst of that. And you're right, because it is the, the contempt. Even in my own life, when I feel contempt, if I stop on the rare occasion that I'm willing to stop and go, all right, I need to follow that thread, it always goes back to some other story. Yeah. It always goes back to the idea that I've seen this movie before. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's really helpful. I think it's, it's good to be careful with that. Okay, I have another big lead into this next question. Oh, I want to check time. Oh. We're in good shape. Okay, so I just finished a book by a guy named Richard Reeves. He's a progressive. He's not even a liberal. He's a progressive. Uh, and the book is called Of Boys and Men. And he's arguing in this book that boys and men today in our culture are currently being left behind in the wake of the woke. In the wake of the woke, we're being left behind and we need to be careful of that. He also, unlike progressives, of which he is one, he believes in the biological, neurological, and physiological differences between men and women. Some of those differences between men and women are assets, and some of those differences between men and women are liabilities. Um, and he follows such people as he follows people like who have done work before him, John Gray, Deborah Tannen, uh, Kurt Thompson, and Judith Tingley in this. And one of those differences that all of them are citing, including Gray and others, and then uh, certainly um, uh, Richard Reeves, one of the differences is discernment, which is mentioned here about Abigail in this chapter, discernment for women. Uh, John Gray calls a woman's ability to discern uh, higher and better than most men, generally speaking, a woman's ability to discern. He calls it whole brain processing. In the 60s, we called it something else. Anybody remember? Women's Not women's lib. You got the first word right, bud. That's it, bud. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to talk anymore, bud. <laughs> what? Women's intuition, that's right. And he talks, he said, we used to call this women's intuition. Now we have the scientific facts, physiologically, neurologically, biologically, to understand that the way women's brains are put together, they just, they have this whole brain processing uh, that's better than men. It doesn't make men lesser or women better or women lesser or men better. It's just different. And, and so they have this asset, this ability, okay? So 
Uh, do you sense this, first of all? Do you sense this generally? I, I feel like I do. Uh, the psychologist Mark Gunger certainly has you know, gone all over the nation giving talks about this as well. Um, so do you sense this? Um, you also just have a few kids. I think it was four. four yeah? yeah, okay. I'm kidding. I know you have four kids. How does this discernment play into parenting? And then, uh, well, I'll leave the third question after those first. Do you sense it, and how does that play into parenting? Is it, are you told me that I read that book. That was really good. Which, which book? The Boys and Men. Oh, you have? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, wow. after you told me. Oh, okay. Yeah, I All mean, right. I audibled it. Okay. It was good. Um, I, and here's what I liked about it. I think that it's so easy to get caught in this kind of like myopic, here's where I am, and not just opened up my eyes to, you know, the play of both sides. I thought that was really, really helpful. Okay, discernment. I t this is a tough one for me because I feel like just me, do I sense this? Do I see it like in my friends? Yes. I feel like it's something I lack personally. So like this is going to sound silly, but I, when we first got married, I did not have a lot of like, I wasn't able to slow down and like process and whatever. So I would ask myself, this is embarrassing to admit, I, I'm, you guys are getting all the things. I would ask myself, what would Tim do? And then I would do that thing. Uh, because I felt like he was a Did whole, you have a little wristband? I mean, I should have. Yeah. I felt like he was a whole lot more <clears throat> discerning. But I, I think what it boils down to is both parties having a healthy respect for each other. Mm -hmm. Like, are you willing to slow down and take in all the information? Or are you so certain that you know which way you're going? Are you willing to, like, David did a, you know, he, he charted a new course right when he was faced with more information but I mean I'm certain because of however long they were married I think Abigail realized I'm not even going to cast any pearls before this swine right now because he won't listen anyways yeah that's and that's a tough place to be um, if you're not willing to to do that anymore you've essentially thrown in the towel you've done what's called quiet quitting you know, you've given up on, on the situation. And that can, that can be really sad. Even The Office dealt with this. If, if you're an Office fan in the last uh, season, when Jim and Pam were having pro Jim and Pam had problems. Remember that? Okay. <clears throat> and when they had problems, uh, the counsel they got was when they quit fighting, that's when the marriage is over. So they have to keep fighting. They have to. And, and the way I describe it, again, in, in premarital and then with. Um, married couples who are struggling, uh, the question I ask for pre-marrieds is, are you willing to continue to investigate your partner after you're married? Mm -hmm. Are you willing to continue to ask questions and to yeah. find out who yeah. they are, to court them, and to, and to be as interested in them after you're married as you were before? Because that's key to going forward. That's really good. And then that, and then that helps in that a process of discernment. And then the last thing I'll say about that is I've said many times that um, probably Jackie's greatest and strongest spiritual gift is discernment, mm -hmm. which has only failed her once. It was about 35 and a half years ago, but at any rate, um, <laughs> but she has that discernment. I just got that. And <laughs> <laughs> she has that discernment. I can't begin to tell you how many times she has said in the past, oh, I don't know about that. You better, you better watch out. You're going down that road. You better watch out. And and I've learned over the years to start listening to that mm -hmm. um, and, and, not, and not worry about my pride getting in the way. It's really that. good. So that, so but, that, no, but, so what you're talking about is a workaround. It's like a strategy. I was talking to my 15-year-old about this the other night because he's wired a lot like me where he'll just, you know, ready. But, I mean, I'd like to say I'm ready, fire, aim. 
Yeah. And so the workaround, like I told him, was, you know, what would Tim do? Or it's having counsel, like, you know, good friends and like my small group that I'll call and be like, oh, gosh, I'm ready to burn this down. What do you think is going on here? What do you think really is going on here? <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's I think you have to have a workaround. Mm-hmm. OK, good. Now, when it comes to discernment, how might Tim or any benef- uh, husband benefit from from this idea of discernment? Whole brain processing. Um, well, I think there's just a humility factor. Yeah. Right? Like, like when I think about, um, when I thought about this sermon, I thought about, um, I thought about my own kids and like, what do I want them to look for in a spouse? And I think that the thing I go back to more than anything is, is this idea of mentorship and humility. Because you can learn anything if you're willing to learn. Except math, but except on. math, but yeah, I mean, I get well, you can learn. Come on, you, if you really want to learn, you can learn. But like, you, if you're willing to learn, but I think it's like woe to the person who doesn't want to learn, who thinks right. they've got it all figured out. Like that would be the worst person to be married to. Yeah, um, I've seen. This will sound really self-promoting, but it's not. It's just I, I've learned from watching others. I've seen too many pastors hit their sixties and sort of ease off the gas. And that's the last thing I want to do. I want to keep learning. I want to keep mm-hmm. uh, pushing forward and keep betting, getting better, I think. Yeah. Um, it is at least a sense of purpose. Three more questions. Uh, one that really wasn't on the list that I gave you, but, um, but we talked a little bit about it when we had coffee. Um, and this, this goes with what um, Richard Reeves in his book talked about sort of tangentially. But in our current culture, what we are doing is we are, we are essentially in our culture working towards eliminating women while also demasculizing men. Uh, do you see that happening? And I know where you're going to go with this, but would you say that's a good thing that we're doing that in our culture? Um, no, that's not a good right. thing. And I think um, I just think you need both sides of the coin. And I think it's really easy... I mean, I don't know that I can necessarily speak to that. I think just for me and my own experience, I remember, um, you know, as a young mom covered in kids, like, I never put on shoes, you know, much less makeup or took a shower. And it, and I remember thinking, like, when Tim would come home, like, just want to, like, put everything on him. Like, we're, you know, I'm, it's like, and I remember a mentor of mine asking, and I cried when I think about it, because she said, have you thanked your husband for laying down his life for you today? Like, just by getting up and going to work. And I just think, like, you know, it that like on a macro level I don't even know that I can speak to that but on a micro level like how do we in our own homes in our own communities honor the different parts you know that yes. both people bring to the table yeah the body yeah. which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. uh, 12 yeah um, even in our liberated culture what challenges do you face because you believe that you're, you're a woman mm-hmm. marketplace family are there challenges that are specifically tied to you being a woman, do you think? Um, you know, I'm sure there are. And I think by nature, my personality, I'm probably oblivious to a lot of them. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Lindsay's laughing. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I'm sure there are, but I think I'm probably oblivious to them. I've kind of like figured out how to be where I am and, you know, and be here. Um, but I you know, I see it more for other people. Does that make sense? Is that, it's like the most disassociated answer that you could possibly get to that question. I was hoping for that. <laughs> yes. But, but see, here's, but here's the tension that I feel. Um, uh, I think I'm, 
I, I never asked him this, but I, so I'm speaking for him, and I could be way off. But please tell me later when we're alone if I'm way off. Okay. Um, but your strength and the fact that you um, are ready, shoot, aim. You know, Jackie would also describe herself as somebody who is always on the move, always doing, always getting stuff done. And she is, and, and the job she has at North Phoenix Baptist Church, that's how she, nobody could do what she does in that job without having that sort of personality. Yes, yeah, And it's, it's uh -huh. strength, it's, it's, um, it's powerful, uh, it's courageous, it's all of those things. Um, and in fact, that's, those are the qualities that attracted me to Jackie. I would imagine these are the things that also attracted Tim to you. And yet, those strengths, those assets can also be liabilities in, in the wrong context. Well, and I think nobody does see when you kind of hit a wall and there is, you know, one too many things and then I'll just spend the day in bed, you know, like grieving or talking and Tim's like, oh, wow, what, what happened? <laughs> and then every now and again, I mean, it just happened a little bit ago where I, you know, was probably a little too forceful, you know, with somebody um, that I do business with and Tim had to like get in there and roll a grenade and be like, yeah, that was really a really inappropriate way to talk to my wife. And that, yeah, it was really... I, I didn't expect that, you know, because my first response now, just from the work I've done, is to always, and sometimes we feedback, I always just say thank you and then move on, you know? Yeah. Or try to. Wow. Last question for you, Stacy, which, by the way, again, thank you for coming up and sharing with us and being vulnerable and, and doing this uh, with us. Um, is there a question that I did not ask you that you wish I had asked you? And what would be that question and what would be the answer? I feel like there's a couple things. Okay, great. I'm ready. Let's hear them. <laughs> One, we talked a little bit about, like, what do you do or how do you counsel somebody um, who's in a marriage with a spouse that's not seeking Christ or not following Christ? And it's funny because literally we talked about that, and my response was, you know, you try to help them see, you know, life is a blip, you know, on the whole line of, right. you know, eternity. Um, and I had that same thing literally come up the next week and I like told her the story and it's, it's heartbreaking. It's like you, we all have those things where you just like, you want to like say, God, I wouldn't want to live up under that. And yet then how do you counsel somebody, um, you know, to, to stay, I guess to stay put and to stay honorable and to, you know, take care of what's on their side of the fence. But that's just a, it's a really hard thing. We didn't really unpack that. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess what I told her and I guess what I, you know, is you kind of look at it like maybe you walk out of the situation, you walk down a year or you walk down two years and you think like, okay, future self, how would I make myself proud, um, in this circumstance and showing honor to someone that like doesn't, you know, that's her, that's, that's hurting you. Yeah. Um, Tom, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor used to talk about Daniel in that way. And he said, I want you to notice that um, Daniel was the same person when he was 80 as he was when he was 15 in terms of how he understood God and, and his strength in his life. And that's a really important uh, thing. The other thing I would say about that is um, you all know that our oldest daughter, Shelby, is getting married a week from Saturday to, to Zach. Um, so he's my son-in-law in training right now. And... Um, <laughs> They have been, so I went through premarital. That was weird. It was just weird. I went through premarital. I did their premarital. 
And, and then they said, we would like some other perspective. So they went through premarital with Tyler, Tyler James, too. And I know they've been spending a lot of time with Steve and, and Ann, which, you know, then Jackie and I had to fix. And then, um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We appreciate how you've poured into them. And yet they still keep coming back and wanting to ask questions um, about that. And, and uh, uh, this may not have much to do with Abigail, um, but it does have something to do with the fact that husbands and wives are different and they need to figure out how to complement each other mm, in order right. to make this work. That's really good. And, um, and so they asked us this question on Saturday when we were having lunch. What do you think is the biggest reason that marriages end up not working? And I have this thing that I do for premarital and I also take it to marriage retreats and conferences that I'll teach at um, that I think is helpful, but Jackie will tell me, if you're not doing that, you're making a mistake. She's like, that's your best, that's your best <laughs> session. And it's called the top 10 issues that married couples will face that they need to be ready to take care of. And, and the first four of them all go together. And essentially, they all, they all are generated from, from uh, the fact that the biggest problem in marriage is the selfishness yeah. on the part yeah. of one or both yeah. spouses. Yeah. The, the unwillingness of a spouse to really recognize that they are also a part of the problem in the marriage. Yeah. And as I, as I counsel with married couples who are having problems, that's just true. Yeah. It just, most of it just goes back to that. You know, oh, but it's, it's internet pornography or it's money the way it's being spent or it's our communication, all these issues that yeah. come up. And it's like, yeah. yeah, all of that is being driven from a, from a place of selfishness and pride. Yeah. And we, and we have to remember that. Yeah, our budget coach says it this way. She said you don't fix the money problems with money. <laughs> That's right? really good. Yeah. yeah, and I think the other thing too is we've talked about this in our small group is like we have to be more concerned about having blind spots than hearing about them. That's really good, too. Yeah. yeah. And I think, like, I, I tell, like, married couple, newly married couples, I'm like, it's like the things that Zach loves about Shelby, the things that Shelby loves about Zach, like, they're going to get better with age. Yes. But the caveat is if you're getting better with age. Yes. That's right? really good. Yes. And so I think that it's like, are we seeking growth? Are we looking for people to tell us where the blind spots are? Are we spending time with the Lord are we are our habits lining up with who we want to be I mean all of these things because the things that I loved about Tim are like so much better and I've come to appreciate him so much more over yeah. the last 20 years yeah so any final words for us I feel like I just gave you more final words I could give more words okay <laughs> oh uh, <laughs> no I think I just I, I appreciate thank you for okay thank you too um to would you guys come up here and, and pray with me your your family sit up here and go yes no that's it you know uh, father god thank you so much for the barretts and for um, stacy's willingness to come up and be vulnerable and to um, let us hear uh, from a different perspective than is just normally uh, broadcast here uh, which i think is really helpful and i'm glad that she was willing to do that thank you for um, the marriage that they have the family that they have uh, and but especially thank you for the commitment that they have to you. God, they are pursuing your will. They want to know who you are. 
and they want to submit their lives to you. And I believe that's the key to everything else. So thank you for that example. I just pray for them. I pray that you'll show them your favor, God, that you'll give them your wisdom and your hope. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. You guys. Okay, so um, last three weeks. Next week, we're going to do Ruth, and I'm doing, I'm doing Ruth. Uh, Ruth is considered by most scholars as the greatest storytelling in the Bible, that, that particular book, those four chapters. So we're going to cover Ruth next week. The following week is when we're going to do Deborah, uh, and we're going to have uh, Michelle is going to be having the conversation with me, which will be great. And then the last week, which is May 10th, I'm going to be doing wisdom. We'll be doing wisdom, and Ann Wheeler is going to be having the conversation with me. Um, Steve Wheeler foolishly has decided to leave town that week, so he won't be with us. So um, hopefully we'll get the podcast up quickly and he can listen to it and get fixed. So anyway, thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, Really appreciate you all coming, and uh, have a great week. We'll see you Sunday morning for more of Romans 8.